great pastor and evangelist, A.W. Tozer, once said, God is looking for people to do, uh, through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. Another way that the Bible puts it is in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where Paul says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, that was one of those verses that kind of clung to me, uh, God really used to minister to me, because I knew it was the exact opposite of who I naturally was. Um, by, by nature, I'm not a risk taker. Uh, I'm the definition of conservative. I'm the guy that will drive a car until the wheels come off, right? I've got a 16-year-old Jeep out there, and I will drive it like Fred Flintstone if I had to, <laughs> rather than trade it in. I like the comfort of familiarity. I like feeling like, to be honest, like I'm in control of what's going on in my life. And so I tend to make decisions within the very, very, very safe boundaries and predictable boundaries I typically um, go within. Now, that could be healthy in some cases, but, but there are times I feel, and I know, and you know, that God brings across situations that you don't know what the outcome will be. And you still have to make a choice. And the choice you make, whether it's a path of least resistance or the path that is, a, um, that is open wide, at least you, a little bit easier to go down, will reveal whether you are truly willing to trust God or not. God is looking for faith, like I met in a couple uh, a few years ago, where they were willing, just a few years earlier, they were just this normal couple working your nine to five, and God called them to go to Nicaragua with their family of six, and they went. God's looking for the faith of a man who had a high-profile job making five figures, and he left that job so that he can take a position at a church where he'd get paid less, and get this, he goes to the church and says, do with me whatever you want. Just let me serve you however I can. And then a few years later, after that, he does the same thing. God calls him to Colorado, and he's willing to go and answer that call, too. To be honest with you, uh, when people ask me, how'd you end up in Berlin? Uh, the ultimate answer is because God called for us to go to Berlin. And so we went. And the thing I've learned over time is that our relationship with God is built on walking by faith, not by sight, being willing not only to trust God with your eternity, but to trust God with your well-being in the present. Now, that's hard to do. It's very, very hard to do when you know in the present that could risk something. And yet he's looking to stretch us beyond our comfort zone. I think maybe the 21-day fast was a preparation of sorts for the crossing to consider individually and collectively that maybe God is calling us to stretch beyond our limits. Maybe God's trying to stir something within us that forces us to ask, what does God want to do through me? What, what bold ways does God want me to step out and be used by him? Maybe he's calling you to be a little more courageous. And if you're like me, Mr. Conservative, when I get that kind of call, I get very timid. And I get very scared. Yet God's call must be answered. It must. Today's passage really extends to two stories. Jesus was asked by a man named Jairus to go heal his daughter. And on his way to go heal his daughter, there's a little interruption. A woman who is suffering with a disease asks for Jesus to heal her. And when you're looking at the two stories, it seems like this is 
a, a, a accident of sorts, but we know with God there are no accidents. There are no, no real interruptions. He is sovereignly in control of every circumstance, and he does things all well. And so I want to focus on her story particularly. And when you consider her circumstances, what, what she does in coming to Jesus in spite of what she's going through could have been considered dangerous, and we'll, we'll go over that, could have been considered extremely dangerous, yet she does it anyway. She's willing to take that risk. And when God presents circumstances where he calls us to be bold, the thing I want you to be encouraged by is that Jesus is worth that risk. Jesus is more than worth that risk. The first thing we learn from her example is when we feel inadequate, how many of you feel inadequate often? When we feel inadequate, we're to turn to Jesus in, like the hymn says, in our helpless estate. Uh, The disease she was um, struggling with, she had, is similar to the flow that, that happens during a menstrual cycle, except it never stopped. It's 12 years long. And in that time, she spent everything she had on the best doctors and the best hospitals money could buy. And yet still nothing changed. In fact, in Matthew and in Mark, we're told that her situation actually got worse every time she went to a doctor's appointment. Now, I know many of us, at least several of us, are are struggling with with diseases the doctors don't know the answer to. And so you know how, how difficult it can be when doctors are puzzled, and yet you go over and over again hoping maybe this time, maybe this time they'll make a little progress on things. Uh, when I was in high school, I don't consider this to be a big-time disease in any way, but I, I had boils that formed all over my body. And it was so debilitating that I, I couldn't sit or lay down without being in, in excruciating pain. Uh, it lasted for three weeks, and it's extreme. It lasted for four years in and out. The thing that was most difficult about that time was going to every doctor's visit and then doing every blood test and, and knowing after a while they just weren't going to find the answer. There's nothing more discouraging than feeling like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. But her suffering wasn't just physical, it was relational too. And we're told in the Old Testament law, the Jewish law, it states that anyone who has a, a menstrual flow... Um, was considered unclean until it was over, and then they went to a period of purification. Well, since this was perpetual, guess what? She was always unclean. And so no one wanted to come in contact with her for fear of becoming unclean themselves. Even if she touched something and someone else touched that same object, they'd become unclean. And so you have this extreme in her life where, you know what? People were looking at her like she was an outcast. Her own family members, probably, you know, family gatherings, friend gatherings, even coming to fellowship and worshiping out at the church was out of the question. Twelve years of extreme isolation. Isolation. And some might say when you, when you, when you go to that extreme, when, when friendship and relationships are taken, it's like life itself is robbed from you. Because how much of life is having community that you belong to, having those relationships having at least the people of God to cry out to when life is going tough. She had nothing. Again, she was an outcast. And people back then would look at her circumstance, because, you know, back then they look at your circumstance and, and determine whether God was blessing or cursing you by how your circumstances were going. And they look at her circumstance, and they would think to themselves, boy, what, what did she do to make God so angry at her? Wrongful thinking there, but thinking that she must have been cursed by God to have such a tough fate 
as this. And I tell you, if there's anyone that could maybe possibly consider that God has turned their back on them, I think this woman has at least a fair reasoning for that. And when a person gets there, I got to tell you, I've seen it firsthand. They could stay there for years. Bitter and angry at God. If God really loves me, why would he take this person from me? Why would he present this challenge in my life? Why would he rip away my health at the prime of my life? Where is he? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever felt that? Now, the amazing thing to me about this woman is in spite of her circumstances, 12 years, her heart's not hardened. She looks at this situation where this crowd is around Jesus as an opportunity to just sneak up and just touch the, the fringe of his garment. Literally, it could be just a tassel on the edge of his cloak, thinking there's no way he could possibly, possibly know it was her. Now, the thing about this is if normal people didn't want to be touched by this woman, how would they feel about her touching Jesus? Prominent, the great teacher. I got to tell you right now, um, a crowd is liable to start a mob about something like that. That this unclean woman is willing to touch Jesus? We've seen with Jesus in New Testament and, and Stephen and Paul that, you know, sometimes the Jewish crowds got together. Uh, they would stone someone who said something or did something they didn't like. And, and so it's very potentially dangerous for her to do this, and yet she does it anyway. Matthew's account of this story, this passage tells us in 921, she, she says, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. She was so determined and so confident that if she did this, that God would heal her. And verse 44 of this passage tells us she was healed immediately. Now, when we were younger, um, Charlotte can attest to this, and Tim, wherever you are, went on a mission trip to uh, Dominican Republic. There you are, Charlotte. And um, when we went on a mission trip, there was a high rope course we had to go to. You remember that? High rope course. I hate heights. I hate, hate heights. And one of the things we had to do was rappelled down a wall. Now, I think it was 100 feet high. Maybe it was 50. It doesn't matter to me. It was terrifying. And, and so when we're, you know when you're about to rappel and, and, and there's this little drop you have to make before your, your spotter catches you? Like a couple inches? <laughs> Terrified. I think I was there for like five minutes trying to motivate myself. All I'm thinking about is what ifs. You know, what if they slip? What if my, you know, harness is not on right? What if, what if, what if, right? And I think often the what ifs can keep us from fulfilling God's purpose for our lives. What if my friends from school or work reject me if I start being more passionate for Christ? What if they get turned off if I start sharing my faith? What if when those controversial conversations come up about, you know, same-sex marriage and abortion, instead of staying quiet, I say the truth in love? What if, as a woman, I dress modestly in a sexually saturated culture? Will I still be interesting to guys? What if, as a guy, I don't speak and, and act and even look at the things that other guys look at? Can I still be in without being one of the guys, what if, what if, from a ministry standpoint, people may question, what if I'm not smart enough to be a, a life group leader or good enough to be in a certain position? 
I've had people say to me, Pastor, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You have no idea what I've done. God doesn't use people like me. I've also heard people say or question, what can God do with a timid girl on a mission field? What can God do with me in the inner city? Or church say, I, I, I know God's called us to this, but have you ever heard this? We just don't have the funds. There's just no way we can move forward. You see it also when people are facing addictions and refuse to admit it altogether or refuse to get help because in their mind, people don't change. People like them don't change. They're a failure and they're a disappointment. Now, they may think to themselves that that's only thoughts limited to themselves or thoughts about themselves only. But when you are in Christ, whether you know it or not, you are inadvertently also saying, you don't believe God can change you. I mean, with all these examples, isn't that the heart of it? Right? It comes in different shapes and forms, and we look at it as, as external pressures that, that make us feel inadequate. But at the end of the day, what we're really saying is, I don't know if God can get me through this or change me. Or we might be saying, I don't know if I want to face the consequences of taking the risk. Because there are consequences for taking the risk, isn't it? It's scary. It's pricey. And yet when we forget that, we forget, in my opinion, the very heart of being a disciple is count the cost. Count the cost. The sum of the Christian life is Christ living through us as we pick up our cost to follow him. Everything about that will imply risk. Get this, not just some risk. In some cases, everything. Everything may be on the line for you to follow Jesus. In Luke 5, when Jesus called his disciples, we're told they left everything to follow him. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, describing when he came in Christ, I consider that everything a loss, I consider everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ. Yet somewhere along the way, the call to die to ourself has been replaced with live your best life now. And 10 steps to this or that. We've replaced pursuing God's will with him helping us fulfill our dreams and our plans. I think the appeal of the, the gospel or the prosperity gospel is it's all about me. God's not calling me to change anything. You know, God's not looking to interrupt my life. He, he's my buddy. He's not looking to change me. He doesn't have any expectations of me. He is coming to make my situation better. That's the only God I know and love. I think we get too preoccupied, or if we let that prevailing message get to us, and, and we know our nature. Our nature is to be too preoccupied with ourselves. You combine those two together, and boy, you have a very, very dangerous combination where we're so distracted by what we want that we're not pursuing what God has called us to be. Boy, that's scary. Listen to me, saints. God loves you. He loves you so much that though he is well, adamantly concerned about your well-being now, he's most concerned about Christ being formed in you. You get that? He is most concerned about that. He's primarily concerned about that. 
God has a long view on what's best for you. And sometimes that might mean right now might not be as pleasant for the long view. When you get older, a, a thing happens. Anybody like Doritos when they were younger and, and, and Hot Pockets? You know, we, I used to live off that stuff. I'm sure it did something bad to me. Anyway, so, you know, when you live off that stuff when you're younger, you have this thought, it's, the, it's great. But obviously, in the long run, it's not best for you. As you get older, you realize you've got to bear with the plants and the green stuff and the Daniel Fast stuff where you have to eat that so you can have longevity, right? And in the same way, spiritually, there are things that we have to go through that may not be present in or pleasant in the present, but are best for the long run. And I find, and you might find this too, it's usually the most difficult things in life that draws me closer to him. It's when I feel weak and I feel inadequate and I'm willing to say, God, I need you. Because otherwise, I don't think that way. And you don't think that way. It's just the way we're wired. The evangelist George Mueller put it like this. God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means. I say and say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. We should take them out of his hands as evidence of, get this, his love and care for us in developing more and more that faith which he's seeking to strengthen in us. Oswald Chamber adds, there are some things only learned in the fiery furnace. I think the Lord uses these moments where we can either draw back in fear or step out in faith so that we can, by stepping out in faith, show that he's greater than our fears and doubts. Verse 45 of the passage we're looking at today says this. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. The Greek word used for, for pressing could also be used to define imprisonment or confinement, to, to press grapes. And to be honest, it was typically the way things were for Jesus. Crowds would always be around him or normally be around him, looking to be healed looking for just a touch to have him heal him. You see an example, actually, in, in Matthew 14. It tells us when he's in the town of Gennesaret, people were just looking as this woman to touch the fringe of his garment to be healed. And so when I look at that circumstance and I consider this passage, I ask myself, so what's the big deal here? If Jesus has, has healed people through this way before, then, then what's the big deal that it's done this way again? Why make such a fuss of making this woman come out and, and, and have her stand out to admit that it was her? Let's consider that. When you read about the woman in verse 47, it was seeing that she was hidden that made her come out trembling. Well, that implies to me is that uh, she knew that he knew <laughs> it was her, right? That she's caught and there's nowhere to hide. Now, here's a real test, because it's one thing to come to Jesus when he's not looking. No one's looking. No one sees it. But what about when everyone is looking? Would she make that step? It could have been very dangerous, as we said before. And she does. And she confesses. 
And Jesus says what I think is the opposite of what this crowd may be kind of getting their fists ready and maybe picking up his, who knows, getting really upset and ready to do something. He says the opposite of what everyone expects in verse 48 when he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You know the difference between this miracle and other miracles just like it? This is a woman who's been humiliated and casted away for 12 years. As a woman back then, she had no true status in society, let alone her disease. And to me, when I see Jesus do something like this, to me, it's his way of saying, amongst, for all to see, that's the kind of person I desire. Someone who is willing to risk it all. Someone who is not afraid of what others may say, but unabashedly runs towards me. That is the kind of faith I desire. I think that's what Jesus is trying to get across to both her and the people around her. Jesus is greater than the risk itself. Remember, there's two stories here, right? There's the story with the woman, and then there's the story with Jairus and her daughter. For Jesus to help this woman, he has to let the daughter die. If you read a little further, and that doesn't seem fair. It seems like he's pushing him to the back burner when he had an urgent request that really needed attention right now. And yet, Jesus tells him to trust him in faith. And because he's willing to trust him in faith, the daughter is healed later on, we find out. And the point I think here is that there are no interruptions or accidents with God. None. And similar, by faith, just like by faith she was healed, by faith the daughter would be healed too. What she needed was this. What Jairus needed was to wait on God and trust that he will not disappoint him at any turn. God providentially knew what this woman needed, and God providentially knew what Jairus needed, too. Here's my point. Here's where we're going. You ever thought about how God sovereignly works in certain people's lives, in each of our lives, in different ways? Or even how he allows certain trials to affect us in different ways? In some instances, we may be delivered, be delivered from something quicker than others. Some things we may have the grace to be bolder, and some things we're a little more timid. A more weaker in. While others, for some reason, make us feel in, incredibly weak, fragile, there are times God graciously helps us see what's ahead. Other times we can't see nothing. There are times we feel like He's very near, and times where we feel like He's very distant. In all this, God is calling us to trust that He knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing in your circumstance. You may not think. That's the case. It may seem chaotic. It may seem like there are no reasonable reasons for this to be happening in your life. And yet God, in his loving, great counsel, knows what he's doing. I've heard it said that the best place to be is in the eye of the storm, which sounds absolutely nuts to me. It's chaotic. It's demolishing everything in your life. Everything you have built your hope and trust in, which could be part of the problem too. And God uses that to help us understand, you need to trust me. I'm the one that's going to get you through this. Well, sometimes I look at the life of David. David is an interesting fellow. And you look at the beginning of his life, and it's, it's, it's neat. God's blessing him. He's, he's you know, under Saul, and, and great things are happening. He's a, he's a great warrior. 
but then things kind of turn, and Saul gets jealous and, and starts running after him and trying to kill him. And he's in the wilderness for years. And you kind of wonder, I'm sure he wondered, God, what's going on here? This is definitely not part of the plan. Uh, the, the throne is not in the wilderness, right? A detour took place here of some sorts. And I'm sure, I know, we feel the same way at times too when difficult things take place. But the thing I love about the Bible and the thing I love about David in particular is that what I can't see in my life, I could see as I read the pages of the Bible where it's headed. That there's an end. That God's plan hasn't got interrupted. It actually is still going linearly in the path that it's supposed to go. Does that make sense to you? I think David needed the wilderness to make him sensitive for the heart of God. I think David needed those cold nights where he didn't know where else to turn. And where he had to cry out and just say, God, I just need you to speak and encourage me. I think it helped him when he messed up with Bathsheba. I think that helped him repent. I think it helped him when Absalom was coming after him and trying to take the throne to submit to God and let it be him that restored his throne. I think the wilderness helped David become a man after God's own heart. I really do. I think the woman needed those 12 years to encounter Jesus in a special way. I think Jarius needed to wait to know that God will never disappoint you if you wait on him. And I think maybe whatever situation you're going through, that you maybe need to consider it's exactly what God is using and wants to use to bring you closer to him. I don't look down on that. I'm not taking it lightly. God is very concerned about our struggles, and he cares about them. But he is so great that he can use our pain to reveal just how awesome and merciful he is if we allow him to. I really believe that. But you have to submit to that. You have to lean into that. You cannot shake your fist in anger and bitterness towards God. You must find yourself crying out to him. In the times where you want to question and doubt, you must find yourself still crying out to him. And he will not disappoint you. Not disappoint you. And close off with this thought. Well, pastors always say that, don't they? They always say that. They, they never do. They never do. I'm sorry. I'm not going to close with this thought. Forget, forget I said that. Um, everything I've said is rooted in the gospel. Every single word we've just talked about is rooted in the fact that Jesus died on the cross so that by faith our sins may be forgiven, our wounds would be healed. There's a song you guys, I say you guys, we, we sing. Um, that I, I heard here, I think it was the day I preached. Um, it goes, I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. In another portion of the song, it goes, who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. And the phrase that keeps ringing in my ear, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. I am by the cross what God has deemed me to be. You take that truth, you add Romans 8.32 to it, which says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let me break it down to you like this. If God was willing to give his most personal gift that he can give, why wouldn't he help us out in ways that seem very small in comparison to that gift? Why wouldn't he respond to you? 
Why wouldn't he reveal himself in the most personal ways you need him to reveal himself to you in his good time and in his good way? Folks, he will. Amen? Amen. When we turn to Jesus in our helplessness, we are saying that he is greater. He is greater than whatever we're facing right now, and God honors that. Now I can say we're coming to the close. David Livingstone was a a Scottish missionary for 32 years in Africa, Um, had tremendous faith, went through a lot of struggles and trials. And and here's a quote he says. He says, um, people talk of the sacrifices I made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paying back a small part of a great debt we owe to God, to our God, and we can never pay? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Have this in the back of your mind. His wife went with him, of course. She got malaria, and she died on the mission field. He's saying this with this in mind. He continues. Say, rather, it's a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger. Now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences, charities of life, make us pause and cause the spirit to waver. And the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in us. I never made a sacrifice, he says. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made. Who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Bold faith is rooted in the cross. And when you realize by faith you have everything in Christ, you are willing to give anything for Christ. I pray that God would give us the eyes to realize how precious he is. And he's worth that risk.